Just a little quick warning at the top of the show, this episode does discuss depression. So if this is a trigger for you, either skip this one or reach out to Lifeline on 131114. Hi, I'm Libby Trickett. This is All That Glitters, my podcast where I sit down with the world's best retired athletes and explore the transition from the bright lights of competition to the real world. On today's show, we have Paralympic swimmer Jessica Smith. Well, if you had to choose just one word to describe Jessica Smith, it would be resilient. The 28-year-old representing Australia at the 2004 Paralympic Games in Athens. And now she's been nominated for a Pride of Australia Award. So, Jess, I first kind of started following you on Instagram in 2019 when you kind of had announced that you were going to have your third baby and we were at quite similar stages of child rearing and child bringing into the worldness, if that makes sense, because my daughter is only about three weeks older than your youngest son. And yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just so in awe of what you were doing because, you know, not only were you going to raise three children under the age of four, basically, but you're traveling the world. I obviously have an affinity with you in terms of your Paralympic swimming and your journey with that. And all of the advocacy work that you do nowadays. But I think I, I mean, there's so much that I can talk to you about so, so much, but I guess I wanted to start right at the beginning. How did you come to Paralympic swimming? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, in in hindsight and, and looking back, I think swimming was just something that made me feel free and powerful in this world where I didn't know where I fit in. Uh, I was remember from as young as five trying to question my identity. So really not knowing my place, swimming gave me a sense of um, empowerment in many ways. So I was born missing my left arm. And to this day, we still don't know why that occurred. It was just one of those things. And my parents were advised to have me fitted with a prosthetic limb from as young as possible. And so, of course, wanting to do everything that they could to support me, I was fitted with my first fake arm when I was about 18 months of age. And it's nothing. it was nothing like the technology that we have today. It was like a hideous claw contraption that wrapped around my entire body. And, you know, I, I remember a lot of language being used by doctors and professionals that were saying, you know, that I was different and my disability would hinder me in many ways. And so this arm was going to to help me live a normal life. But it actually led to the most horrific event in my life. I um, was in the kitchen one morning with my mum and she was making morning tea. She just boiled the kettle and being a curious toddler, as we are very familiar with, I... I noticed a plate of biscuits on the bench and I wandered over with my new amazing arm and I reached up to grab a biscuit, but I didn't realize that I had also knocked the kettle down in that process. So I spilt boiling water on myself and sustained third degree burns to 15% of my body, predominantly my neck and chest. Mm. Um, and my mom, in, a, in an attempt to save my life, she you know, took the arm off, but in doing so, the clothes and I know it's quite graphic, but all my skin as well. Mm. And so I was rushed to Sydney Children's Hospital where we were living at the time. I underwent, you know, blood transfusions and skin grafts. I had skin removed from my right leg and the only way they could 
keep it in place on my neck and chest was to staple it. And then I had to wear the compression garments for, for years later. And I remember from as young as possible, just wanting to understand why and nobody had any answers, but everyone was telling me that I was different, you know. So imagine being around um, that sort of that language and that attitude and environment and knowing within yourself that that's not who you are and and trying to break free of that. Mm. And I guess growing up in Australia, having a backyard swimming pool, swimming, like I said, it just gave me a sense of freedom. I was able to use my body and show people that I could do something rather than, you know, what everyone assumed that I couldn't do. And I guess it just evolved from from there, just the, I suppose, a natural talent. But I remember competing at my first school swimming carnival when I was 10 and I won the 50 freestyle, beating all the girls and boys with two arms. And I think it was in that moment that I realized that whatever this was, I wanted to continue doing forever because it was the first time I felt as though people were recognizing me for what I could do rather Mm. than what I couldn't. And, you know, I had no idea what that would look like or what that would mean. And at the time, I had no idea what the Paralympic Games were. I grew up in a, a, a small town in New South Wales, Grafton on the North Coast, where, you know, I didn't see disability. Mm. You know, I was the only one, you know, in, in my world that looked different. And so um, this idea of being able to be part of a group of athletes that we had a commonality, it, it, it just didn't enter my mind at that point. But swimming it still gave me this safety and this place of where I felt that I could express myself. And so I, I wanted to hang on to that. And, you know, as most swimmers can identify, it sort of became everything. I, I was there in the morning, in the evening, I worked at the local swimming pool. Um, and yeah, it, it, it evolved from that quite, quite quickly. Um, I was selected onto my first Australian team when I was 13. So young. Um, and Incredible. Yeah, it's really young. Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't understand the enormity of what was expected of me and also, you know, from going from racing in your age group to all of a sudden being an adult and the expectations that come along with that. So I, I learned to grow up very quickly. Um, but also in that time of Paralympic sport, you know, it's it wasn't like what it is today. And, and you know, just with the, the Tokyo Paralympics, we've seen so much coverage and we've seen so many leaps and bounds forward with, you know, Paralympic athletes now being paid the equivalent if they were a medal winner. I mean, that just wasn't even in the realm of our um, thoughts at that point. So I, I guess I came through the sport at a very different time as well, but it was something that was a, a constant in my life when things were all, you know, sort of taking crazy turns as they do when you're, you know, a young female athlete going through puberty, going through adolescence and trying to figure out who you are. So, yeah, I, I, my swimming career has enabled me to do everything that I do today because on paper, I'm not the most successful Paralympian at all. And that's because of so many things that happened throughout my career. But there's so many parallels that I've been able to to draw from that experience. And, you know, I'll be forever grateful for, for my time as a Paralympian. I find that really interesting because you've kind of had already at a really young age, you've had two very strong identities, right? So, you know, growing up in a small town, you were the only person that you knew with a disability. So that would have influenced how you saw yourself, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. And then you were really good at swimming. And 
and that creates its own identity. How do you manage that at such a young age to understand yourself because you start to identify as these particular things? Do you feel like that influenced how you were growing up? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such an amazing question. I've never really been asked that before. And I guess the answer is that I wasn't able to manage it. You know, um, I thought I was managing it well, but, you know, in reality, it, it was all too much because for me, trying to feel the same excitement as I did when I was swimming and when I was away with the Australian team, I was never able to replicate that in my everyday life. You know, I was still always the different one. I was still always the girl with the disability and I desperately wanted to break free from that identity. So, but in many ways, that was the identity that was enabling me to to travel the world and to represent my country. So, it's a, it was a really weird parallel of trying to bring the two identities together. And unfortunately for me, I don't think I was able to do that at such a young age. Um, and, you know... I, I struggled with body image, absolutely. I was trying to fit into a world where there wasn't a mould for me, somebody like me. You know, I, I never saw myself represented in the media, magazines, movies. There was nobody with a disability. Um, or if there were, it was, you know, somebody in a wheelchair that, you know, it was a very specific um, group that was identified as disability. So again, for me, I was like, but that's not me. I still don't know where I fit in. When I'm with the swimming team, yes, there is a, um, even like an unspoken understanding that we all have a story, we've all experienced and, you know, gone through adversity of some sort. Of, some sort. But away from that, you know, I, I remember coming home from camps or trips and just feeling depressed because I was like, I, I don't have my group anymore. I don't have someone around me who understands what I'm going through. Um, and so the, the body image issues became very prominent from about 13, 14, where I convinced myself that if I could lose a little bit of weight and change what I could control about my body, and fit within societal, you know, expectations of what beauty and perfection are, then maybe I would, people would see past my obvious imperfections mm. and maybe then I'd be accepted and maybe then I'd be happy. And so the focus away from the pool became trying to fit in and not be someone living with a disability. But then the flip side to that was my career was taking off because of the fact that I had a disability. So it was really, really challenging to, to emotionally and mentally balance both of those identities, like you say. And correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to put words into, into your mouth, but you didn't quite reach where you wanted to go with your sport from my understanding. It's That's always, right. it's always yeah. hard to say that because I think uh, a lot of people looking from the outside in go, you're a Paralympian. Like you represented your country in, in swimming at the Paralympic Games and there's so much to be proud of. But as athletes, we have these expectations, we have these desires, we have these this drive and intensity to achieve something in particular can you tell us about that experience in Athens for you? Yeah, Athens was a very bittersweet experience. And, you know, it's, it probably took me a decade to voice that because I didn't want 
people to think that I wasn't grateful and that I wasn't proud. But in reality, like exactly what you've just said, I went there to win gold. I didn't go there to walk away with nothing. And so when people would say, oh, but you got there, you know, and I'm like, it's not good enough. And I feel that at the time, the way Paralympic sport was viewed within society was, it's, it's just not where I wanted it to be. I wasn't seen as an elite athlete and I was desperately trying to to change that societal perception. Um, and, and I guess that's what made it so much harder for me because I was trying, I was worried so much about what other people were thinking. Mm. Um, but landing in Athens, I just turned 19 and my, I was struggling with eating disorders, bulimia and anorexia at the time. And it was as if it all just compounded, you know, um, in 2004. And I was only swimmer who didn't make a final and I was expected mm. to medal in three events Ugh. and that's that's hard that's yeah. really hard and again that I've have haven't started sharing until very recently because the shame and the guilt that comes with that is is extraordinary and for me to to be invited to go and speak somewhere, for example, or even on this podcast, I think there's this uh, assumption people make that, oh, you have a disability, you would compete at the Paralympics, you must have won a gold medal. Mm. You know, like it's a stage of thinking um, that that is dangerous because it's not true. You know, there's only so many that can win medals and there's quite a lot of people who don't. And I fall into that category. Um, and so it, it's been very difficult well, initially it was very difficult to then sort of have this realisation that I had the opportunity and I should have done better, but I didn't perform when I needed to. And as an athlete, I mean, that, there's nothing worse, mm. right? So after Athens, I was so determined to continue to Beijing. But at the time, my eating disorder was just taking hold and uh, my coach, Ron McKeon, um, had said, you know, he didn't feel that it was responsible for him to continue coaching me in the, the the mental and physical state that I was in. And so that was my rock bottom of realizing that if I wanted to continue living, I had to walk away from my swimming career wow. um, at a time when I hadn't achieved what I wanted to achieve, what I wanted to set out. And so, you know, to, to, to get to a point where I had to say, okay, you know, I'm no longer a swimmer. Well, who am I? I go back to being just that girl with a disability. And so that that whole time of of walking away from the pool and going into recovery from my eating disorders was really tumultuous because I, again, it came back to, well, who am I? What do I identify as now? Mm. If I'm not a swimmer, what the hell am I? And I definitely don't want to be a girl with a disability. And all of those, you know, thoughts and feelings came flooding back. And so it was a really difficult time. And I tried so many times to do a comeback. Mm. You know, I said to Ron, no, I'm, I'm coming back. I'll come back just for the 50. I can do this. And, you know, he was supportive, but he was like, I think, you know, it's time to, it's time to walk away. And, and that, that was my rock bottom. And I just thought, oh my God, I don't know. I don't know how to move forward from this. And, you know, as, as a 13-year-old, having those goals and dreams and aspirations to, to win a gold medal for my country at a Paralympic Games, of course, that was the ultimate. And that's what I was striving to achieve, but it just it, it didn't happen. And even to this day, there's still that, that lingering feeling there of what if, um, which will never go away. Um, but that's, that's my reality. And 
again, obviously I'm, I'm grateful for that experience because it has led me into the work that I do today and, and still being able to connect with, you know, current Olympians and Paralympians and feel like I'm in some way part of that community. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it was very difficult. I think probably most athletes have that pang of what if. I don't know that there would be any athlete out there that doesn't have that sort of little, oh, I just wish, I wish something was different. But do you feel like that experience through that transition, because I mean, I think all athletes retiring have that, that transition of feeling like they have no idea who the hell they are. And, you know, you were in a particularly precarious position, obviously experiencing your eating disorders and body image issues and wanting to be a swimmer and not wanting to be the girl with a disability. Like, how do you make that transition? How, like, I know that you obviously got, got help for, for what you needed to get help for, but where do you go from there? What happens next? Yeah, so after I landed back in Australia, I realised that I needed a lot of intervention and that came in the way of going into uh, a rehab facility in Sydney. So I spent six weeks as an inpatient and some of the timing of this is still blurred because, you know, I was quite sick at that point. So some of my timings in terms of years and months and whatever are a little bit out. But after coming back, you know, I knew that I needed to get help in order to to move forward. And, you know, as cliche as it sounds, hitting rock bottom was the best thing for me at that time. It enabled me to to reassess and to prioritise. And, you know, I did have very, very dark moments where I thought, you know, it's much easier if I just take myself out of this world mm. than, than being here and being present and having to deal with all of this. But there was enough motivation in me saying, you know, no, I want to I want to live. I have no idea what that looks like, but there's just enough of that there to keep me here. Um, and it takes time. You know, it's, it's, it took a lot of years, a lot of steps forward, a lot of steps back, talking to counsellors, psychologists, psychiatrists. And I think the realisation that there's no magic pill, there is no one answer that suits everybody. And for me, it was about learning to trust the process, trust that the next step, will unfold after the next. And and that I think is really difficult, especially for for athletes in particular who, you know, speaking for myself, I'm so scheduled and I need to know what's happening. I need to know when it's happening. You know, everything impacts everything else. And so to let go of all of that and to surrender and to be vulnerable to the unknown, it's terrifying. Terrifying. But there was just enough will. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's the worst feeling in the world. Um, but like I said, there was just enough left in me to know that I had to do that and I and it would be okay but you know the answer to your question how and when I, th I think it it's time and that that time point is different for everybody you know and it's so hard not to compare I, we, we all compare you know I would look at other people who are in their recovery journey and I'm like you know I'm not where you are will I ever be at that point um you know and just this week I've shared you know I'm sort of 10 years into recovery and wow. I celebrate that now because all the different milestones and points throughout that recovery journey um, are sort of mixed and, and and complicated because of, you know, 
it looks different for everybody, right? And so just to be in this place now of complete and ultimate freedom of my eating disorders and, and a negative body image is is a huge, huge milestone. But I think, you know, I, I wish there was one answer, but there's not. And and so the the important thing is for people to understand you have to be able to to adapt and to be willing to to trust that each process is different for every individual, but that the process, if you're willing to put in the time and effort to focus and heal yourself, it will transpire into what's right for you. Mm. I mean, it's such a powerful message and it's such an um, interesting thing because at the end of the day, you don't know what is happening, even as athletes, right? Like even when we think we're super prepared and super in control, I know for me in Athens, a bus was late and that sent me down a spiral of a rabbit hole of stress and anxiety and it impacted my performance. And so, you know, even when we think we're prepared and even when we think we know and we're in control, we have to, at the end of the day, let it, leave it up to the universe or whatever, whatever you believe in, that the, the next thing will unfold in the way that it's supposed to. Yeah, exactly. And that's not an easy thing for anyone to to allow their minds to be open to that sort of thinking, you know. But And that's what I mean. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of retraining our, our mindset and those voices inside of us to, to, to switch that, that reality and, and the terminology and the language that we use. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it does. It, it takes a bloody long time. But I'm here yes. and it's all okay. And do you feel like those experiences have led you to the work that you do now? Because, I mean, you do so much in, in so many different areas and you've won so many awards and have had so much recognition for the amazing advocacy work that you have done in your life so far. Do you feel like all of those experiences have led you to this point now? Yeah, definitely. I think it's all the pieces of the puzzle coming together. And, you know, one thing I say to to almost everyone is that we're all exactly where we are supposed to be at any given time, even if it's really painful. Um, we, we might not be able to see what it's all for and what it's leading to, but we're meant to be here right now. Um, and for me, absolutely, every single experience, every, you know, distraught moment of, of not getting to where I wanted to, my swimming career and, and, and what unfolded as a result of that in terms of relationships and friendships and all of that, knowing that it has led me to where I'm supposed to be today. And in terms of, you know, the advocacy work, it, it kind of evolved through me sharing my story at a time where not many people were talking about disability, not many people were talking about eating disorders because of the shame and the stigma associated with that and with mental health. And so I was on this platform where people were wanting to hear my story, but also at the same time realizing that it wasn't just about me and my story, but about everybody else and theirs. And how could I create a safe space and place where people felt that they could share their stories with me? So understanding that listening was is one of the most important parts of communication and giving people the opportunity to to share their stories with me because I didn't have that opportunity when I so desperately needed it throughout my career you know I was trying to speak up but I felt like everyone sort of turned their backs and was it was easier for everyone to pretend that there was nothing happening um and so 
realizing, okay, how can I give back and contribute in a way that I know would have helped me during my struggles? What can I do to help other people? So um, I'm very, very grateful and humbled by the, you know, the awards that I've received over the years, but their motivation to keep going as opposed to that being the goal of why I do what I do. And I think I've been fortunate as well to be able to speak to various audiences and as someone who, like I said earlier, on paper isn't the most successful Paralympian, still have been able to use my voice that has impacted people around the world. And, you know, I think that that says something as well for the fact that we don't always have to be the gold medal or the world record holder to be able to inspire people either. Um, And so that, but that was a difficult one for me as well to sort of take this space where I felt, am I worthy of this? Because mm. I am, I don't have that gold medal. I don't have that world record. Um, but realizing that it was the way I was able to communicate with people and how they could relate to what I was saying and and implement different things. Uh, I, I suppose use my story as a metaphor for whatever they might have been going through. And so that has been the process, you know, since retiring um, and wanting to encourage kids and families to talk about difference and disability so that when they see our Paralympic athletes on television, you know, it's not, oh, you know, what's wrong with them? It's more, wow, look how fast they swam Mm. or look how fast they ran or you look at the skills that they've got in that particular sport and that's what we need the conversation to be. And so I think we're we're getting there. And if I can contribute my voice in some way to, to help that progress forward, then that's what it's all about. You're so empowering. I just feel like the power that you have within you is really palpable. It's really just amazing to to talk to you about that stuff because I I know that, um, I mean, even with uh, having Olympic gold medals, I still don't feel worthy and I still don't necessarily feel like, you know, like I should be sharing my story um, and experiences with mental illness and things like that. And to hear you be able to communicate and articulate your journey so beautifully is just really empowering. You should be incredibly proud of yourself. Um, I Thank just, you. Yeah, no, honestly, it, it, it's really um, – Really inspiring, Jess. Really amazing. But how do you? How do you? Um, how, I mean, how do you navigate three children? I mean, I would love to get your advice on that because That's, that I is mean, a shit yeah. show. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, and you know, motherhood is the most exhausting thing I've ever done in my life, physically, mm. mentally, spiritually, like everything, um, and. I don't know. I think you just have to go with every day like, and just think, right, I'm awake. I got two hours sleep. Let's just crack on. And mm. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I remember thinking when I was pregnant with um, my first, my daughter, you know, that I had never really thought how my disability might impact my ability to be a parent, mm. but other people did. And I started to get questions from family and friends which I found a little bit confronting that they were like well will you be able to manage and I was like of course like why wouldn't I be able to manage and then 
as the hormones got more intense and I got closer and closer to my due date, I was like, wow, how am I going to manage this? How am I going to bath a newborn baby? How am I going to change a nappy? How am I going to put a pram together and, you know, carry a baby and do all of these sorts of things? And so that was probably a really low moment. I remember going into the bathroom and just sobbing at the thought that I might not be able to do what a mother is supposed to do. And, you know, then she was born and I just, like in everything else I've had to do in my life, I found my own way of doing yeah. things and, and it's been fine and it's perfect for her and it's perfect for me. Um, but I think for a lot of people, again, it's these assumptions that my disability is the hardest part about motherhood, but it's not. Mm. It's the sleep deprivation. It's everything else that every other mother experiences, you know, those the mum guilt and and the worry and trying to do a million things at one time and having to think of everything. Um, you know, like my husband said the other day, well, what's what's for dinner? And I'm like, I have absolutely no idea. Like I have no idea. I haven't thought that far ahead, you know, mm. because I'm thinking if we've got enough toilet paper and what uniform have the kids got to wear and do we have enough of this and that? I'm like, I just, I can't do it all. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I love, I really love being a mum and um, love my kids, obviously, every mother does. But there's times when I just think, wow, like this is not an easy journey. And perhaps, you know, I don't know if being an athlete and being, you know, having such black and white thinking sometimes has helped me or hindered me. I don't know. But I think we're all doing the best we can. Mm. And, you know, I, I have to say that there were times before becoming a mother where I it wasn't so much judgment for other mums, but it was just a complete lack of awareness about what mothers were, and, you know, parents are going through. Oh, no, um, I judged the hell out of other mothers. I was like, <laughs> with my oh. sister, I, I have this joke with my sister that I remember seeing her youngest son do a bushwee at the park. And I just <laughs> remember thinking to myself, oh, that's just disgusting. I cannot believe she is letting him do a wee in the middle of a park. That is horrific. And then my oldest, she did a bushwee on the side of a road. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like whatever, man, just you do what you need to do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's just like that's exactly right. Whatever is going to work mm. to keep the harmony of this household and to keep everybody from fighting. Like my, my daughter's about to turn six, so I've got five, three, and almost two. And it's just like, just can everyone just be be calm? And yep. they, they never are. And when they're calm, you know that there's something terrible going on. You exactly. know, like they're when getting they're into yep. what they shouldn't be getting into. Yeah. So it's just like, but I think, yeah, motherhood. I I love and I and I enjoy that journey. But you know, uh, we should as mothers be allowed to express those hard times without feeling as though we're being judged and without mm. having someone to come in and fix the problems all the time. I think totally. sometimes we just need to vent and for someone else to say, "Yep." I get you, you know, um, because it's bloody hard. It is. It's so hard. And I think you're, I think you're right. I think to have that safe space with friends or loved ones who get it, uh, yeah. or, you know, just building a community that you're able to go and talk to those people that you know and trust to exactly. be able to go, yeah, man, that, that was 
some fucked up shit last night, not being able to sleep <laughs> yeah. or, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever exactly. it might be. Exactly. Or that was a hell of a number three nappy that I had to yes. deal with. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and all those things happen, like, you know, at the worst time or, you know, like you ha- you have a 8am meeting or something and you've had literally no sleep the night before. But there's also this expectation that you can't, um, dwell on that too much. You have to crack on. So I think we need to have more discussions, uh, you know, as women and as mums and as men as our allies to understand that, you know, there, there are some really tough moments that we can't control. We can't mm. control if the kids don't sleep, but it impacts everything that we do. And and I feel that there's so much pressure on mothers in particular at, at this time of generation when we have social media and the comparisons are there and I think it makes it really really difficult um going back to work not going back to work Mm. all these decisions that we feel have to be immediate and I think that that's really unfair for women when they're faced with these things of having to bounce back whether it's their body or their Mm. career or whatever it might be it's what happened to allowing women to to determine that time frame for themselves I, I really wish we could work on that more as a society do you feel like that intense athlete attitude has crossed over at all into your parenting because I know uh, particularly after the birth of of Poppy my first that intensity of perfectionism and feeling like I was never doing anything right was suffocating to me and I think was definitely part of why I went into postnatal depression after her do you feel like that has impacted the way that you parent or you've been able to kind of shift that mindset pretty quickly and swiftly? I think initially it it certainly did. Um, and there were some really dark moments where I felt like I just, I wasn't able to succeed or achieve as a mother because of what I thought the milestones needed to mm. look like. And so, yes, that level of perfectionism of, you know, you know, making sure that, she had been read to, fed, played with all of these things while I was making sure the house was perfect and cooking dinner and, you know, so that when my husband got home, you know, it was like, oh, Jess is amazing at doing all of this. Meanwhile, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm breaking inside because in order to do all of this, I, I'm exhausted and I don't get any time to myself. And, yeah, I think I've been able to let that go a little bit mm. by number three. Yeah. Um, you're, by number three, you're like, whatever a, goes, man. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you're fine. You'll, you'll be okay. You dropped um, it on the floor five but yeah, days I ago, but you the can expect eat it. changes. <laughs> yes. But I think the expectations changed as well, you know. Like, I really had no idea that babies didn't sleep. Mm. Like, I just, I had people say, oh, it's a little bit like jet lag. And I was like, yeah, I can manage jet lag. It's fine. And then eight months in, I was like, my child does not sleep. Mm. And, you know, I had one or two friends at the time who had also had children and, you know, they were like, oh, you know, my daughter sleeps 12 hours. Mm. And I was like, what, what, how? And so feeling like I had, again, was failing in some way. What had I done wrong? Like, why isn't my child sleeping? I need sleep. This is, you know, this isn't okay. Um, And I, but of course my anxiety was, you know, she felt that in every way. And so by the time, you know, my my two sons had come along, I had I really did try to ease a lot of that internal expectations that I was putting on myself to to help. Um, 
still my kids don't sleep. It didn't really impact any of that. Mm. Um, but I guess I was just able to be a little bit easier on myself. Yeah. But I think it's still there. I think it's always there, right? Like no matter what you're doing, that level of perfectionism and wanting to be the very best at everything that you do, for me, it, it comes through. But I think, you know, the older I get and the more time I'm away from from that competitive space, um, it, it isn't much easier to navigate. But I see it creeping through a little bit. My daughter started like it's essentially like nippers here. Mm-hmm. And um, they were competing last year. And I was like, go, hello. And the parents are like, she's five. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah, I'm not me. I'm not that parent. But I was really I like, come parent. on. And then I was like, wow, I don't want to. Just have fun, you know. Yeah. Just have fun, but win, yeah. win that medal. Um, so trying to be like, oh my god, how do you, how do you balance that? But no, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm I think I'm doing okay. Yeah, no, that's super impressive. <laughs> Poppy started um, swim club last year, and I'm the same. I'm like, go. I mean, hey, go. Just have fun, sweetie. Ha ha. <laughs> I actually ended up stop like not going anymore because I didn't want to be that person on the side of the pool. <laughs> So um, funny, so funny. And so you're you're currently living in Dubai at the moment. Um, yes. You and your husband moved over there a few years ago now. Yep. Your your husband is Islamic. Yes, yes, yes. and you yes, yes. You um you converted to the Islamic faith before you got married. Is yes. Is that difference of culture? Has that. How do you navigate that as as a couple? Because I find that really interesting when people have two very different backgrounds who come together. Yeah, so I I met my husband Hamid in Australia. He he is Iranian born, but he grew up in Glasgow, and he was working in Australia um, and uh, about seven years ago when we first met. And I think growing up in Australia, as multicultural as we say we are, I feel that. We're not. We have a lot more opportunity to learn. And so when I met Hamid, I had these silly like ideas and preconceived notions about, you know, what would be expected of me if this relationship was to continue. And none of that was true. Mm. And I think the problem is, is that we don't have enough conversations uh, around, you know, different cultures and, and religion. And we're just sort of shown things through the media and and that can be very problematic and you know meeting Hamid is the best thing that's ever happened to me he he is a, a fantastic husband a fantastic father and when we decided that we wanted to get married his parents had said to me you know would I consider converting to to Islam and I grew up Catholic. Um, both my parents are Catholic. But what was interesting was that I didn't realise my father had converted to Catholicism for my mum. Ah, and so, yeah, so and I, I didn't know that. And I thought well, that was just a really interesting, you know, conversation to have with them because I guess any reservations that I was having were really from a place of not understanding mm. and also stubbornness in many ways well why should I why should I and so I I really had to do a lot of self-exploration to think well what does this mean to my husband and to my future parents-in-law what what does it represent to them and I came to the to the conclusion that I wanted to do this as a form of respect and a Mm. form of love and I know that there'll be many people who criticize my choices um you know of of it being about 
loving a person and wanting to do that for them essentially but but that's the decision that I made and in terms of what's changed and how does that impact my day-to-day life very very little Mm. I think the, there's so much beauty in combining cultures, um, you know, and now living here in, in Dubai, in the UAE, um, he he feels very much, you know, closer to home and, you know, we hear the call to prayer here every day, five times a day, there's mosques on on every corner. And so for him, it's, it's this sense of who he is. Mm. And for me, it's really, really amazing to to now be in this environment to to see that and to see how you know he he was raised and how he grew up and what his faith means to him and um and being in a place where you know he practiced uh ramadan in australia but you know not many people do and so it was much harder for him but here you know it's such an amazing and beautiful celebration representing you know charity and giving back and a bit like you know lent for anyone who is christian or catholic and and so for me, being able to learn and understand more about that has been really, really amazing. And the, it, I guess it's brought a deeper connection. So I, I don't say that I am a, a practicing Muslim, but together as a family, I am respectful of, of his faith and his wishes and, and how we raise our children. And at the end of the day, that comes down to the morals and the values that we have as individuals, which mm. my parents instilled in me and his parents instilled in him. And I think that that's what has made this relationship work. And, yeah, I just think it's a beautiful synergy. Um, and most people, um, especially back home, there, there were a lot of questions and, I, and it, it was really interesting for me to navigate all of that while in a relationship with with someone who it was just about love and respect mm. for one another so it, it's not something that you know I don't wear a headscarf you know there's so many ways that I can show my respect to the faith without having it to be the stereotypical norms that are often fed to us through the media mm. I think it's beautiful I think to be able to give your children different cultures and different experiences and expose them to different lives. Um, I think it's amazing. It's just, and I think, I think that's where Australia does lack because we are an island and we are multicultural and, you know, by, you know, certain terms, but by, by the same token, like you said, I just don't think we're taught enough. And I think a lot of people are afraid of asking those questions because they don't want to offend anybody for one, but also we just, exactly. we just don't know what the questions are to ask. Yeah. And I think that that's a really good point you raised because often that's what it is. It's that fear of unknown and that's with any minority group. So I mm. guess, you know, living with a disability, so many people have questions they don't yes. know how to ask, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same with different cultures and religions. But I think living here has been a blessing for our kids because there's so much diversity, so many expats from so many places in the world. So we celebrate so many international events and, um, you know, it's from, from Christmas to Diwali to Ramadan to eat everything. And I think for the kids' sake, that that is amazing. And so it, it is something beautiful. And I think that once we get over that fear and are not understanding something, we realise that, there's so many commonalities. We're so similar in so many ways. And if we just put respect and having good morals and values at the forefront of everything that we do, then this world would be a much better place. Much better place. I couldn't agree more. Just on that, because I, I would love to get 
tips for any parents out there who, um, you know, have their kids and who are, you know, wanting to ask questions about people with a disability? What are, what are your tips to parents to explain things to their children? I think the most important thing for parents to know is that it's okay not to have the answers and it's okay to let your children see that you don't have the answers. So one common scene for me is being in the park with my kids and a child will say, mommy, that lady only has one arm and then seeing them say, shh, and then walk away. Mm. Please don't do that because the message that you then send your children is that disability is different, it's wrong, it's bad, and it should be avoided. And obviously, we want to teach our kids the opposite. So one of the best responses is simply acknowledging what your child has said or seen. So if they say that lady only has one arm, yes, she does. You don't necessarily have to create a huge conversation Mm. around it either to make it, you know, such a um, special topic because sometimes when we do that, it sends the same message that, oh, we're, we're focusing so much on this now. Like, why? What's 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 so special about it? And I think what we really need to be doing is just acknowledging that difference is there. It exists in every single day, in every culture, in every environment, every country. And if we just say, yeah, that person has one arm or that person uses a wheelchair, and then that's it. And then, you know, if your child has more questions that, that you particularly don't have the answers to, saying, okay, well, maybe we can go and ask that person. And and for me, I am so comfortable with people coming and asking me questions. Obviously, some people may not be, so you have to be able to respect people's responses and what what they say. But I am so open and more than willing for for parents and children to come and to to have a conversation with me because I would much rather that than pointing or staring, Mm. making up stories, not knowing, and then for the child to fear me next time they see me or anyone with a disability so just by having those those conversations and by having resources at home you know kids books that do represent difference and I think there's so many wonderful um, cartoons and things available at the moment where difference is present it is seen and but also not focusing on it so much because kids don't see difference the way adults see difference and that's something that people have to understand is that a lot of the time it's our own projections and thoughts and feelings onto our kids that then shape how they think and feel about what they're seeing. And so if we can try and role model the behaviours that we want them to enact, that's going to be the most important part. And so that comes back to to just having simple conversations where it's really like a, I say sports casting, so just saying what you see Mm. rather than creating you know, some sort of extra feeling around disability is is probably the best way that parents can approach it. And like you said, treating every situation and every person with kindness and respect and coming from exactly. a place of love ra- rather than fear or, or worry about doing the wrong thing, just being exactly. respectful. Yeah. Um, I'll finish off with one question or two, sorry, I'll finish off with two questions. What are you most proud of from your swimming career? What, what is the, the thing or is there a moment or achievement or what, what does that look like for you? What, what, is it, what are you most proud of? I'm most proud of the fact that I was able to have such longevity. So I continued or I represented Australia for seven years and I think given everything that I was going through at the time, to be able to have that consistency is something that uh, I look back now and realise that was in itself a really big achievement. And finally... What would your advice be to any athlete who might be struggling with any sort of illness, 
issues, mental illness or, or, you know, eating disorders, things like that, and they're going through a phase of that transition into life after sport, is there is there something that you can – a tip or a advice that you could give to someone who might be in that situation? I think it would be to make sure that you have a safe – group of people around you and by safe I mean people that you can trust to talk to where you don't feel as though they're necessarily there to try and fix problems because I think especially in that transition phase a lot of the time we just need people who are willing to to listen and so if you can find those people whether it is you know former coaches or whether it's family or whether it's counsellors or friends to be able to say look be honest in communication both ways of, of you feeling as though you can say, I'm not sure how this transition is going to look, but I just need you know to have my, my safe group of people around me as that happens. But also reaching out to people who have been there and done that and are now on the other side, because I think you know that's uh, invaluable information and conversations that can be had that perhaps you won't read in a book or you won't necessarily see on, on a documentary, uh, you know, being able to to find the people that you connect with, their stories, and and ask them, you know, is it can can you help me transition through through this phase? And I think, you know, if, if someone was to ask that of me, I'd be more than willing to to help because I know that I desperately needed that at the time. Mm. So I think making sure you have those people that you can connect with. Incredible, Jess. Thank you so much for your time today. I just oh my pleasure. Keep shining your beautiful light in the world. It's just just awesome to watch. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode with Jessica Smith. She is just such an incredibly articulate woman who has had just such a myriad of experiences and challenges and traumas and, you know, obviously eating disorders and recovery. And I just found her ability to articulate her journey really inspiring and the way that she kind of holds that space and presence uh, was really empowering to me. I, I was blown away by what she was able to articulate uh, in today's conversation. But if you want to get in touch with her, maybe book her for an event to, to speak at. She's also a children's author, so make sure you check that and we will be putting links to those on the show notes. Otherwise, please rate, review, subscribe, share. Uh, all of the good things and otherwise I hope you have a lovely week and just a reminder if this has been a, a trigger for you and you're feeling like you're going through a difficult time make sure you reach out and give Lifeline a call on 13 11 14.